This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Driven by Data, the podcast, season two, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We're delighted to bring you another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, which boasts even more data analytics and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Our aim remains the same to uncover how some of the most prominent leaders within the data analytics community tackle our industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, ideas, and experience. And just as in season one, to give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season two. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Adam Schrocker, who is the head of machine learning engineering at Origami. So Adam, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Been a while. Yeah, it has. It has. We've actually, for all the listeners out there, Adam and I have actually recorded a podcast on another podcast that we no longer speak about. Um, but I'm sure if people were to <laughs> dig through the archives, they, they'll probably probably find it. Um, which was, God, yeah, feels like a lifetime ago now. Yeah. But that was a that was when we could do podcasts face to face in person. Yeah. Um, so look, where we always start, as you'll know, is by asking our guests to give themselves a brief uh, introduction into their background and, I guess, journey up until this point, if uh, if you'd be so kind. Yeah, fine enough. Yeah, so I started off as a data scientist um, off the back of my research in laser physics. I started to touch a little bit of machine learning there and loved it. So I wanted to dig into that space, became a data scientist, worked for um, some really small startups and they had mixed outcomes and uh, eventually moved on to consulting uh, incremental was my last uh, employer um absolutely loved it there and i really really like consulting i think that's a really good model for a lot of organizations to engage with data science as well actually i still kind of believe that um i was there for nearly th- well, just under three years i ended up becoming director for the data and our business unit there. So I went from being like the individual contributor to like worrying about marketing and sales and uh, performance management, budgets, all sorts. So that was really quite painful, but quite <laughs> exciting as well. Learned a hell of a lot. Um, and then about 18 months ago, I saw a really cool opportunity to come to Origami, where I am now, as their head of machine learning engineering. Um, for people that don't know Origami, they're yeah, green energy SaaS platform. So looking to try and make renewables um, easier to work with and more profitable for like big asset owner operators, right? The energy industry is really complicated. A lot of the data processing is archaic and like it's not ready to handle real time. So Origami is tackling that problem in a really big way. Um, so yeah, lots of really cool, exciting, difficult um, challenges to sort of face here. So yeah, it's been good. Mm. Well, rather you than me, because everything you just said, I completely don't understand. But uh, I'm sure you'll uh, I'm sure you'll uh, un- unlock a lot of that um, meaning as we go through this. So, obviously, you brought in as the head of ML engineering. Just talk us a little bit through about kind of where that role sits within the business, and I guess ultimately what you're tasked with achieving um, as part of joining the business. 
Yeah, so when I started, so I started, it was a technical role. And I, I did say, look, they will find um, other people that may be slightly more technical than I am. But I had that wider experience of running big teams and doing the kind of broader data analytics stuff, which I think has been a really good fit for what Origami needed, actually. Um, so, yes, whilst I am responsible for the kind of MLOps strategy and how we apply and do data science. I do a lot of the art of the possible stuff as well and guide the teams. I don't actually have a team that I would call mine. So Origami's set up in a way that's similar to the Spotify model. We have like autonomous squads that, that fire away and do their thing within their domains. And then we have some supporting functions and teams that help them out. Um, at the moment, we are building a like a data platform team. So I'm really heavily involved with that. Brought in some um, really good data engineers recently to tackle some of that and build that out. So yeah, my like official responsibilities um, can vary really depending on what the needs are at the moment, and that's kind of what I like about startup life, right? Is that you can say one thing on paper, but as long as you're ready to muck in and and get going and collaborate with people properly, you can you can do a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's a lot to be said for going working in a smaller environment in terms of what it does for someone's career and making them a little bit more rounded, shall we say, yeah. because, um, you know, as you said, there'll be various days where you, you're wearing two or three different hats, right, which um, is a great kind of learning experience. So, um, so as you alluded to there, the, the energy sector is very complicated. Um, I guess, we're hearing a lot now. There's there's a lot of other consulting businesses, and we're hearing a lot, you know, from the big, from the big energy players in the market about how they're trying to utilize data and analytics to tackle some of these big global challenges that we're starting to to hear more and more about as as the years go by, right? But I guess what are you seeing as some of the the key complexities or challenges around that kind of industry? Oh, so I think it's great, right? Especially if you're into data engineering. Um, so interesting. If you go back to like the '90s, right? You say you want to know how much energy your power station is going to produce. Well, that's quite straightforward. It's a function of how much gas you put in or coal you put in or whatever, right? So this is loads of stuff I didn't know before I started at Origami. So anyone's excused from not knowing this, but energy has to be balanced like at all times, demand and consumption. And that's the national good's job, basically. And that is done through trading in open markets um, that you have lots of rules that you, you have to kind of apply to be able to do that. But then there's there's lots of different services as well. So like, there's a longer term like wholesale trading, like my power station will sell this much energy at this time, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get the shorter term stuff. So again, go back to the 90s, everything's gas power stations or whatever. Then I know what I'm going to produce. So... I just have to figure out what demand's going to be as cost forward. So I can you can do your forecasts in advance. It can be quite slow. It's nice and Excel-based, right? Our CEO spotted a few years back, 10 years ago now, that as more renewables come into the system, they make up a bigger and bigger portion of the energy mix. And you can't predict what you're going to produce. So it becomes more volatile. And the long and short of that is you have to go to more and more real-time predictions of, of like what the consumption and what generation is going to be and and so that's where we are at the moment we're, we're in the middle of that transition now it's becoming ever more important and the data platforms that are out there the customers aren't ready for it and you got to think if i'm one person that owns one asset that i want to connect to the grid 
I've got to integrate with all the markets. I've got to understand all the demands. Like you have root to market. There's so many players. It's, it's really very complicated. So origami is trying to not compete with anyone on that space. We don't want to make trades for people. We don't want to become like optimizers, right? We just want to provide the technology that just hides all that, which is great. And so from a technology point of view, what are the challenges? Well, we have real IoT devices that we go and slap on stuff out in the field, right? And they stream as metering data at like 20 hertz. One one of them for every kind of thing that's producing electricity out there, right? So we've got 20 hertz data coming in from them. We get the market data, which is half hourly. So that's kind of chugging away, ticking over what offers were made, what bids were made, um, who was successful, who wasn't. Like, okay, what services have I committed to now that I've kind of made some money? Um you then have contractual domains as well, which are like can be 18 month plus. Like, well, actually, okay, I've said I'm going to make this much money in this place here to these. Who am I going to pay and how? How much are we going to get paid for each bit? It becomes interesting. So you've got all this time domain stuff that you've got to mash together into one thing to figure out, did I actually make any profit off of this or not? And then layering weather, like maintenance schedules and all that. And it's like, it's just the hard bit of trying to get actual physical bits of kit that live out there in the field onto like a digital kind of platform, which is quite interesting. And so the big trend at the minute, just to finish off, is batteries, just buying people with lots of money, investing in great big batteries and sticking them on the grid, right? Because you can use batteries to participate in like short-term frequency response services, which is like when that demand and supply isn't balanced at the latest possible moment, go, right, well, I've got a great big battery and I could dump a load of power but you, you're going to pay me as the grid to have that sat there ready because I could be using it to make money elsewhere. Hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. a cool problem, cool set of problems and very complicated. Yeah, well, I guess obviously as as we move towards a world now where everyone is a lot more conscious about energy consumption, right? Obviously, I mean, I've we've recently bought out as a family and bought a uh, an electric vehicle, right? And obviously there's a whole host of legislation in place now where there's probably going to be no more petrol and diesel cars in mm-hmm. kind of 10, 15 years or whatever the case may be, right? So it's it's obviously it's going that way. So, but it's equally interesting to hear that, you know, that's great for the planet, but <laughs> actually being able to use that and what it means for the businesses in that industry makes it a lot more complicated right to 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 kind of do business just generally speaking so talk us through how the machine learning kind of thing weaves its way through that in terms of you know examples use case anything that you've got to share in terms of you know how that works yeah so and it's, it's funny you get both sides of it so we've done proof of concepts so we've done we've done quite a few projects around this all over um it pops up everywhere because because we're dealing with money in time right it's predicting stuff right we want to know when stuff's going to happen because the further in advance you know the more confidence the better you're going to do probably um but everything from like okay predictive maintenance is a great use case for us because we've got all this physical kit wired up and you've committed to deliver some power at some time. But if a connection or whatever goes down in that window, you'll get fined, right? If you say you're going to do something, you don't. You end up getting fined because the grid has to pay for it from somewhere else and stuff like that. So that becomes really useful. Even just knowing – so I've got we, – we, we were talking with a customer in Austria about we have – thousands of sites and we want to know the demand we can switch the demand on and off up and down so how can we predict like when the prices are going to be cheap and things like that so that we can 
choose the best times to kind of orchestrate all that. And you'll see it's not just us doing this stuff. You look at a company like Greco, they're really interesting because they're it's a similar thing. They're just dealing with a very different part of the energy system. Um, yeah, it's it's all all up for grabs. It's all very much sort of time domain based. And how do we get that into, how do we start predicting the future a bit better so that we can make better decisions or at least inform our customers of what the decisions are, are going to be. And then one thing that you want to get, one sort of utopia you want to get to is automated decision-making given a suite of, of tools or whatever, um, data feeds. I just make my battery operate optimally like just whatever the best is. And so we have, and, and actually, interestingly, a lot of our customers want a rule-based, very simple, logical, rule-based system for that. They don't want machine learning because it's not trusted, mm. not proven. They want to be able to show to their auditors and the like, these were the rules that led to these decisions and stuff like that. So for a lot of these things, you have to, you have to support quite complicated, but rules-based systems first before you can start doing other stuff and showcasing well actually there's kind of money left on the table here xyz yeah do you think there'll be like all the industries that have come before the energy sector that have embarked upon this journey will you know once the we've shown and proved that it works then the ml piece just optimizes that further hopefully fingers crossed <laughs> yeah i don't know you know because so it, we we're, we have this thing about what's called national critical infrastructure it's not like if we miss a, misclassify something or we miss miss a prediction, we lose a bit of money. Like the power grid goes down. It's like well, parts of it. Do you know what I mean? Like you you literally could get fined into oblivion if you mess this up badly enough, right? Mm. So there's a level of nervousness around it and the critical stuff that I think won't ever go away. People, it's a very old industry it's it's kind of very big and there's lots of very clever people that spent whole careers on it right so i don't think i don't think it's going to be disrupted anytime soon by machine learning i think what you'll see is some of the the edge case stuff get picked off the stuff that's lower risk that's a bit like maybe not as high value initially you'd think but it kind of stuff like the predictive maintenance thing like that's a great one because you think okay that that's probably if you, you if you build it on the right side of caution it's probably gonna just be a bit too heavy-handed with the maintenance schedule which is okay and it's going to take you're going to lose some money but it's not going to break anything um yeah it's a, a funny one and you're seeing big players in this market try and take it as well like try and take this on and, and really think about it yeah yeah certainly an interesting space i guess the the origami role in this then are you providing the organizations that operate in this area with just the tooling and the tech or is it platform based like how, how is all of that pieced together yeah so it's a it's a SaaS platform that's yeah. basically announced we want to allow our customers to develop their own tools and platforms on top of what we've on done it. right so the idea being like you go right i've got 20 batteries in this field we come out we connect them all up then you all your data streamed to us that's all handled we can send instructions to them to turn them on and off charge and discharge we you've also got access to all the market data because we've just done all that already it all comes up in a nice interface and you can we're, we're very like api first as well so you know, if you want to just take the data feed straight out and feed them into other bits of software or other things or your own portal, these are all common things that our customers do. Because ultimately, we, we yeah, do that plumbing bit, start layering in that actionable intelligence on top of 
that hard that hard graft of like building a platform that that works out of the box, right? Because mm-hmm. the alternative is every single one of these players has to do that work themselves, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess it's interesting there because obviously you started to speak a little bit earlier around how machine learning probably isn't going to kind of revolutionize an industry that is riddled with complexity and so much risk, right? And we've seen that in other highly regulated sectors, right? You know, there's small use cases where things have have worked well, but there's always a nervousness around, well, we can't just let this thing run free because, you know, the the fines on the other side of getting this thing wrong is is too is too big. And, you know, as as you've said, that causes um kind of some some unrest. I guess to bring this more back to a, a centralized focal point around data science in in general then. What have been the main changes that you've seen then over the last five years or so in terms of where it was versus where it is, broadly speaking? Yeah, data science is interesting. We've seen like, uh, I always laugh like, because some people might be aware, I post a fair chunk on LinkedIn and you get some big comments about stuff. Like the one I always love is when people say, I'll say something about data scientists being T-shaped or learning some skill set. And I get, well, that's a machine learning engineer. I'm like, yeah, that term is like three years old, like four years old. That's not been around for very long, unless you're in big tech. So for me, I think a lot of it is the specialization of roles. So you've got machine learning engineers is the big one, I think. But then analytics engineers are all trendy now. And we're starting to get these. And actually, the kind of resurgence of the data analyst, that become lots of people talking about data analysts first, which just was unheard of a few years ago. So, yeah, maturity around, actually, what does it take to do this stuff? And I think there's enough people out there now that really either been through the pain or really had their fingers burned to not just dive feet first into or let's do an AI for the like for our product like that because that's where we were five years ago at the tail end of that really coupled with that wave of people that have graduated from machine learning and data science programs that didn't exist six years ago seven years ago right um yeah I think that we're starting to see more maturity around how it's being thought about and communicated about I think yeah role specification is is becoming a bit better i think it's still a bit of a disaster and we need to almost abandon the term data science and pick something else that better describes what some of those people actually do um yeah i don't know it's a funny funny space because as well the, the other thing i always talk about online is um like i get argued with by people from like fan companies all the time right and i feel like always saying to me i'm not talking about google for like the the one percent of us that work in google this doesn't apply, right? Everyone else that works at a normal company <laughs> who's just trying to figure this out, like that's who I'm speaking to normally. Mm. It's funny because I guess um, that's probably applicable to, <laughs> to most conversations we have, right? It's when I post anything about you know recruitment or talent or the brand that businesses create around hiring people in this space, it's like, well, of course, you know, you're facebook your googles your teslas your amazons your netflix you know they're kind of excluded from this conversation because people would probably work there for free just to have that on their cv so it's kind of not applicable but you know the other 99 percent of organizations are in the exact same boat you know different levels of maturity different size different scale but the same problem applies right just a slightly bigger or smaller depending upon where you are so it's it's really interesting. I think 
I think you're right. The data science space is kind of uh, kind of seemed to me to lose its way a little bit, if if I'm honest, you know. And I think um, that's probably not being helped with all of the the buzzwords and you know sexiest job of the 21st century, because that then just led to a ton of people going, you know, to these boot camps and all, <laughs> all of that type of stuff, and um, you know, coming out of that with oh, I've got a degree, and and therefore you know what was once an area where demand greatly outweighed supply very quickly supply just outwashed demand and then you know they kind of yeah just lost a bit of its aura i guess and then that you couple that with the fact that many businesses you know who just weren't ready for data science you know they didn't even know if they had data or what shape it was in but tried to do it realized okay we need to kind of reevaluate so it's but i think we're i posted something about this the other day i, I think we're getting to a point obviously the architecture and engineering space has become prominent again because many businesses have right okay we need to get our foundations in place and then we can start to look at how we can do more of the the sexier data science advanced analytics ml stuff i think the data scientist role in whatever it will be called when it re-emerges will re-emerge with with a bit of a bank i think you know and it's the same with like the data analyst as you said you know five years ago i i was actively having to try and talk people into hiring a data analyst who needed a data analyst (laughs) because they wanted to hire a data scientist just because they were called a data scientist and i was like no you don't that's not what you're describing you're not describing a data scientist um but I think again, organizations are starting to understand the value that those people can bring if you just put them in the right place in a business, right? And let them do the job they're supposed to do, which is yeah, really, really interesting. With all of that said, then Adam, how do you build a data science team that that adds genuine business value when you've got all of that kind of complexity going on in the background? Well, look, if you read between the lines of all my posts, don't that's kind of like, <laughs> don't bother. No, but genuinely, um, Depends, like you said, caveats are out of the wazoo, right? But it depends on where you are. If you're just starting out and you're convinced that there's a use case here for data analytics, but you don't you don't know what that is, and I'll get back to that point in a minute. I would definitely, I would, I genuinely engage with third parties like consultancies that you can trust that are going to do a bit of an art of the possible or an impact assessment and figure out what could what your team might need because. I did a consulting piece with, um, I, I did exactly this, an art the possible piece. Um, it was a one-day workshop with a public body that that make revenue, right? Um, and you might have to figure that out because I think there's only one. But a public body that makes revenue. And we did this long thing about all the stuff you could do. Da, 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 like you could do all this and talking about data platform and things. And then halfway through the day, someone went, oh, yeah, revenue, yeah, we don't do any forecasting at all. We just, we just sell everything we have at XYZ. Revenues like seventy-five million pounds, and I just went right. You scrap everything else we've said. Get a data scientists and do some forecasts because there's so like the, the impact of that is so big. You, I can probably guarantee you one percent. It pays for them straight away. But for most other people, engage with someone that knows what they're up to and know has been through it somewhere else. Or if you don't want to go with community, uh, sorry, with consultancies, there's there are organisations like the Data Lab um, that are like government bodies that will help a little bit or communities some of the really good communities that will help you um if you've got some budget to hire some people right i would say your your foundation stuff's always going to be needed so whether or not you have got the engineering the, sorry the data science use case you're going to have to build the pipelines no matter what and actually as you build the strong foundations 
you you get to other little sort of low-hanging fruit that you can do. So I always say that bring in probably bring in either a really good analyst to kind of ballpark where you are and figure things out, or a really good data engineer to to start sorting out your systems and stuff. Again, I worked with a guy uh, years ago. I worked at a place, and there was a data scientist that had been there 18 months, and all he'd done is take all the data sources and stick them in one database because it was so difficult, so complicated. And so he was effectively an inefficient, very expensive DBA, right? You could get a DBA that was better than him and quicker for less to do the work that they loved. Like this guy ended up leaving because he didn't like doing that stuff. So mm-hmm. what am I saying? Get the data foundation stuff in place. And then as you do that, you'll find that automating the odd report for a CFO or something becomes easy and you win a bit of trust and it shows that you're not doing that weird data science thing because that's the other thing, right? A lot of data science projects can't guarantee any outcome at all. They're like gambles or experiments, right? And don't you don't want to be the person that fights for years to get signed off to get a data analytics team started and then spends a couple of years doing nothing and taking all these bets that don't pay off. That won't that won't lead to lots of happiness and lots of money for everyone, right? What you're better off doing is doing the boring stuff really, really well and dipping your toe in that other stuff to see actually is there promise here, I think. So mm. almost put that data science person in last if you've got the right kind of proof points that say, yeah, I think there is value here. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I think broadly speaking, I'd agree with that. And I think that the reason why that has not happened until more recent times is that, you know, again, I speak about this quite a lot, but I think there's a lot of, there was a lot of FOMO in play, right? There was this big kind of almost like obligation, you know, like uh, the competitor or the business across the road, they're, they're doing AI, whatever that meant at that time. And, you know, so therefore they were just, it kind of felt like, you know, business leaders felt like they were, were just needed to impose themselves on on that market to be seen to be kind of cool or cutting edge or whatever the case may be, um, which is, yeah, which is an interesting, interesting kind of topic and um, one that I'm kind of glad we're coming out of the other side on <laughs> now, although it's unfortunate it's just cost people a lot of money and time, but, um, you know, there yeah, we yeah. go. Um Flip it around then, data scientists, because as we said, at one point in time, these people could demand jobs anywhere. And I'm sure the best out there still still can for sure. Um, but there's now a lot of people that are in this market, especially at the entry levels that, as we discussed, went off and studied and are now looking for a route into that market. Um, what's, what can they be doing to you know, focus on having a really successful career? Like, How can they position themselves accordingly? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I always still, yeah, I always think this is probably still true that the absolute best data scientists I've ever worked with are deep domain experts. So they've like had a career of 10, 15, 20 years doing something very technical that isn't like software engineering, that's like in a domain. So like worked with petrochemists, right, that had done that for like 15 years and then they went into data science. And they ran rings around us because they know all the stakeholders. They know what they care about. They know the, the tools they use. They kind of they get an understanding of what's difficult, what's easy, what's expensive, and and they know the data science stuff. So if you think, well, actually, that that makes a lot of sense because they'll they'll be able to demand 
a kind of any role they like within their industry. Yeah. So if there is an industry you absolutely love, I'd go for it. Go for that. Pick something early and just go. So like energy is a great one. There's so much to learn. It's so complicated. There's this joke that like, if you haven't had a 10-year, 20-year-plus career in industry, you're considered new. Like, literally, you've got to have been here for years before anyone takes you seriously. So start. Like, start trying to find roles there and then just really try and learn all the intricacies of, of that industry you're trying to serve. That's hard because the big draw to data science for me was the fact that you can pour your tools and like the, the statistical knowledge you have and the coding you have and your insight between industries and have a little bit of value everywhere so i love that but i think that unless you're going to be a consultant that's probably not going to last and i think even consultancies are starting to be more and more specialist and find people that just reflect what i've just mentioned these kind of domain specialists that can also do the tech stuff yeah, that's probably where I'd go through. Kind of pick two, if most three industries and really learn them. Try and get roles in them that line up to those experiences. Build your projects yeah. in that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I guess in terms of the skills then that you see from where data science has come and where it's going, um, because obviously you get all these debates on LinkedIn where obviously you and I live quite frequently, right? And um you know, it's you get the very heavy people that are very tech focused, so they're you know great coders or whatever, and then the other people that swear by this is a pure statistics gig, and you know this data science was called something else twenty years ago, and <laughs> all these interesting debates that that come up. Um, where do you where do you sit on that kind of spectrum of kind of what's really important? You know, if you're advising people at an earlier stage in their data science career, you know. What's, yeah. what's more important than all of this in terms of getting the balance of skills right? There's almost a bit of a game to be played there, I think. And it's a really unsatisfying answer, but it's the one you can always give. It depends, right? It depends on where you're aiming. So, like, if you want to have a career similar to mine and you want to go work in really early stage startups and build and own something from the ground up, then I promise you being a statistician that, statistician that knows a little bit of Python isn't going to work, right? You have to have the ability to wear every hat. You have to be a communicator. You have to be able to code. You have to do a bit of software engineering. You have to be, do a bit of data engineering. You have to do a bit of ML ops, right? So if you want that experience and you want to be a part of something new, yeah, that kind of generalist, and people say, oh, the, the unicorn data science, it is a reality for some organizations because they have budget for one person. That's it. So you, I, I put a post up recently talking about this and how I, I, I hire people and I, I kind of expect them to have to do clean code, write unit tests, do a bit of CICD. And I got bombed by people, mainly at big companies, saying that's four roles, oh, that's, that's this and that. And I was like, yeah, it's four roles unless there's budget for one role. Then it's one role. I'm sorry. Like, that's yeah, like I'm, what's the minimum number of people my small organisation has to take a bet on with a permanent salary to start you're telling me it's four because I know the vast majority of organizations can't do that. Like um, yeah. they have yeah. most two, right? If they're kicking yeah. off a new practice that yeah. will be aligned under the chief marketing officer or chief financial officer, right? That they're not going to, yeah. Okay. By the way, can you spend 350 grand a year on potentially getting some value out of your data science stack? No, absolutely <laughs> not. So, yeah. On the other side of that coin, if you want to work for a massive company, 
um, or somewhere that's established and running the maturity is really high, then again, more specialism is probably better. Go, yeah, the statisticians will do really well in like banks and stuff like that, where they've got a big level of support to allow them to go really, really deep. And the, yep. I think the best advice I would give on this, if you look at Alexa Gordick's post on how we got a job at DeepMind, that's a great article. And he's a great guy um, to follow content from. But you, you can reverse engineer that, what he did. And he essentially, and I, this is kind of the advice I give to people, pick the, the person who's in the role that you want. And what, what's the exact company or, or like group of companies? What's the exact job title they've got? Find them and their closest peers, people with the similar job titles in theirs or, or part of sort of rival organisations. Ask them because ninety percent of people will respond to you. Cold, like cold approaches about that on LinkedIn, like it's true they do. Um, as long as you don't try to sell them stuff or you're a recruiter, um, <laughs> then they will tell you oh that's the point you at staff probably point your communities look at their career history if it's on linkedin or like again similar people and then just go right how do i get those experiences on that way a lot of people i speak to in tech as a manager like don't have a five-year plan and i think that's weird like i think that's really weird like if you are on in the kind of place you want to be why why like there's an easy way to reverse engineer where you how you get there you just find out and ask people mm, yeah do you think the industry needs to get better at managing expectations of people that are coming into the industry? So, we, I mean, there's this ongoing debate for many years, right, around people go to university and get a data science degree or something similar. But the way that they've learned to do data science in a university setting with a clean data set that's been hand given to them. So they've just got to build a model is so drastically different than them. You know, that one person, as you described landing in an organization going <laughs> where, where the hell is everything? How do I get it? Who do I need to speak to? And therefore they spend all of their time doing pretty much everything else other than data science. Right. And then that's why you get such a fallout rate. Cause people are like, well, this isn't what I signed up for. This is not what I wanted to do. Do you think there's kind of some misalignment of just yeah. kind of communication around that stuff? Yeah, and so to me now, I think that is data science. I actually think right, that everything data analytics role, that's data science. It's the kind of, and I know it wasn't what it was intended to be and all that, I don't care. Right? That is the reality of where most people find themselves. There is some other role that is around developing machine learning models specifically that's separate right and i think most people will land in that kind of every person role where they're doing a bit of everything i don't know i try my best to kind of uh, bring the expectations down by just boohooing the career quite a lot <laughs> but uh it is rewarding and it is really satisfying i do love it but it like the career i mean not sort of boohooing all the time but uh it's yeah, the reality is it's tough. And I kind of no sympathy for that either. Like it's a highly paid role. Suck it up. Like, yeah, it's not, it's not, you're not gonna get paid loads of money to do stuff that's loads of fun all the time. That's just not how the world works. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely makes sense. So obviously, Adam, you and I have known each other for a long time. What I started to notice um at the start of this year was that you were just getting a lot more consistent and regular with your 
content and posting what seemed to be like 10 times a day and was getting a lot of engagement and into a lot of arguments which uh, is always a sign that you're doing something right when that starts to happen um talk us through why you decided to do that and i guess what then the you know the importance of building a strong personal brand or social media presence or whatever you want to call it can potentially do you know for for people yeah so i used to do more of it Back at the earlier days of Incrementum, we used to do more. Um, but then the kind of pressures of being a director and kind of, I just didn't have time to really think about it. And I got out of the habit, really. Then I got to Origami and I moved house and had my first child all at the same time. So it's just been chaos and busyness my life for a while. Um, but as things calmed down, I thought, no, I want to get back into it. I did enjoy it because I quite enjoyed saying stuff and then people either agreeing with you or really pulling it apart and have a barrier because you learn loads of stuff and you get to meet like people from all around the world that that actually also really care about the role which I think is quite cool um so I start I said to myself I'll just start posting every day back in I think it was January I started it was this yeah start this year and I'll see where I go and uh got to into the rhythm of that and I'm now up to twice a day about I think May, I decided to start posting twice a day. And I built a bit of a system for for doing that and queuing up loads of posts. So, yeah, secrets are, yeah, don't sit there and write two posts at bang on half 11 and bang on half four. <laughs> um, they're all scheduled. But it's interesting. And it can sometimes, like, it can get ahead of you a little bit and you get caught up in it and the numbers. But I think the value of it really is in, just speaking to loads of people I, and I get flooded with like my inbox gets flooded with people saying oh look I appreciate your content can you help me with this can you help me with that and you can't help everyone but it's nice to know that what you're saying resonates with people and it helps but actually the best conversations for me aren't the ones where I can pat myself on the back and say oh, I'm right it's when I get pulled apart and the, the biggest one is the one where I turn around and said right I think Basically, machine data scientists should be able to do CICD testing, da, da, da. and it got loads of attention, like half a million views or something. Loads of negative comments. People called. Someone said, "Someone said I was a bad tech and a bad person." In my life. <laughs> um, wow! But that's good because actually, when I reread the post, there was like subtlety and nuance to what I meant that I didn't say, and so it read like I am saying everyone should be a unicorn data scientist. And that isn't really what I meant. And that sounds like a cop out after the fact, but it means that when I, when I go to use those messages again, if I go to like, it sharpens my, my communication um, and my ability to connect with stakeholders at lots of different levels. And then finally, it actually can make you some money building a bit of a brand as like a professional on the side, it can make you money and get you opportunities. So I get paid for blog posts now like and i don't have time to do many of them but people approach me offering me real money to write a blog post right and i that's that's really cool and that doesn't happen if you're not out there putting your 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 voice out there or if people never never get to see or bump into what you say and what you know Mm -hmm. um so i think it's really valuable the opportunities to do stuff and like meet people to to learn to grow yeah i'd recommend it yeah 100%. 100%. I think, you know, it's obviously I speak about this a lot in terms of the benefits of what comes from doing this if you are consistent and, and regular with it and, you know, a lot to the your kind of final few points there, you know, like that visibility thing is massive, especially if you're in an area, you know, maybe more junior in your career like data science where 
you know, the, the opportunities aren't coming as thick and fast as they were five years ago, right? Which I think, as we've discussed, that will probably revert back um, over the coming years. But there's, there's very few people out there that do this stuff. So it's never actually been easier to stand out, um, you know, and the, the proof's in the pudding there. You know, if you're putting out posts that are doing half a million views, it's getting a lot of engagement. Whether people agree or disagree, um, providing there's no one being, you know, arses about it, which it sounds like there were a few, but, you know, you're always going to get them, right? Um, it, it can do... It can do wonders for your career and, you know, just make it just, it just puts you in the spotlight a little bit. Right. You know, when even if it's from recruiters or other businesses that are hiring, you know, if they keep seeing your name constantly, they're probably going to think about you when they next need to to hire or, you know, whatever the case may be. So. So, yeah, um, makes perfect sense. So I guess final question and million dollar question, then where do you think the data science industry will be? If we have this conversation again in five years, what do you think we'll have been talking about? Yeah, do you know, do you know what? Sadly, not very far. I think we'll have made more of a mess than we already have. We'd have maybe gone through another hype cycle with something else. But I don't think we'll agree on some what some of this stuff is. I think positives, we will see one or two people potentially win the kind of MLOP tooling space that's going on. I think that'll be interesting because. Though the kind of having a very structured way to deliver this stuff that is the most popular then informs best practice and it kind of feeds back. So we'll get sharper, like, learning on the job and things like that. It will feed into uni programs and stuff. So we'll get a bit more of a kind of consensus on what is the best way of just doing this and get it all to work out of the box. That'll be interesting. I think it's similar probably for the data engineering space. So this massive explosion of tools will start to either merge or die down and the kind of clear winners in each bit will start to start to emerge. But yeah, I think, I don't think as a community, we would have kind of converged much on, because we'll just have, we'll have more people come in, more opinions, more, there'll, there'll be more stories of success, but more stories of failure. Um, we're still a very young discipline, right? Compared to software engineering or something like that, it's got like, and even software engineering, I'm reading a book on architecture at the moment, and they say like, oh, it's actually really young compared to like proper engineering disciplines, they call it. And we haven't got the same understanding of what like metrics. So in a discussion about code metrics, it says this is the kind of best metrics we've got. Whereas you look at civil engineering and they predict this to X decimal places, blah, 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 blah. And I think data science, we haven't even got code metrics. Like we're miles away. We've not even started on that front. And will we get there? Don't I, um, someone commented on one of my posts um, last week with some a, a link to some Forrester uh, research or something, and it, it basically said that only 5% of technology implementations are successful. And I was just thinking... Wow. Well, if, if, if that's the case, what, what hope have we got? Because the tech part seems to be the bit that we're quite good at at the moment. So <laughs> I was thinking, oh god, yeah, I didn't, I didn't need to, uh, didn't need to read that. But um, yeah, no, it's a, uh, it's an interesting it's time. Really, it's really a job opportunity for you, though. Well, 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 I'm, I'm still here, twelve years later. So uh, <laughs> maybe you know when, when the, when LinkedIn goes quiet, then you know we finally cracked it, possibly. Um, but look, Adam. Great to speak to you as always, mate. Um, and look, look forward to seeing how your journey with Origami unfolds. And uh, yeah, keep keep up the great work with the content. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Great to speak to you, mate. Okay, speak soon. Bye. Bye.
Wait. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week. Bye.